The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. David Yoakum here. Earlier this summer, our team had the great opportunity to join the Association for Psychological Sciences annual conference in San Francisco. And while we were there, we got to talk to a few psychologists about the application of their research. So we were talking about things like, how does memory work? How do you assemble a high-functioning team of, say, astronauts for a multi-year mission to Mars? Are we worse at texting and driving than we think? Over the next few weeks, we're sharing three episodes in our mini-series, Psych in the City. This is episode two. You can find the first episode on memory with Lynn Nadell in our archive. Today we're talking with Dorothy Carter, Assistant Professor of Organizational Psychology at the University of Georgia. And we're talking about teams, but not just any team, an interstellar team. Dorothy Carter, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Today we're going to Mars, which the technological features of this that need to be sorted out are astronomically complex, but so are the psychological aspects of this. First of all, how how long does it take to get to Mars and back? Uh, Rough estimate, approximately three years, one way. One way. Mm -hmm. And how long would they typically spend at Mars? This is an open question, right? We may be setting up shop there for good. We may just be circling Mars. We may be circling and coming back. All right, so I did a cross-country trip with my wife and a dog and two cats, and it was like Oregon Trail-style type of complexity to accomplish this. Tell me a little bit about what it takes to go to Mars and back. So imagine that you and three or four or maybe five other people are going to be in a small capsule, maybe think about a prison cell kind of situation, very small space, and these people are not your family members necessarily. They might be from very different cultures. They might be from very different disciplines from you. And you, four or five people, will be experiencing unprecedented levels of danger, uncertainty. Uh, We don't know what we're getting into, essentially, all the way from here to Mars for multiple years, and there's no exit. So these are the people that you're going to be dealing with until the mission is completed. Where do you even begin? So you get approached by, tell me, first of all, tell me how you got involved in... In NASA specifically? Yes. Okay, so my research is about teamwork and collaboration in organizations more broadly. So I'm what's called an industrial organizational psychologist. And what that means is we basically apply psychological principles to the workplace and understand people and understand how people interact in organizations. Uh, IO psychologists, for short, study things like training, selection, motivation, leadership, collaboration. And so my research specifically is about teamwork and leadership in organizations across the board. And NASA has this ultimate goal of sending a team of astronauts on a long-duration space exploration mission, starting with the moon, and then hopefully continuing on to other farther destinations, such as Mars and other, other destinations along the way. 
when they have these grand challenge missions, they go to scientists across multiple disciplines and they think about what could potentially go wrong. And one of the things that they identified is what they call the team risk is this risk of collaboration breakdowns related to the fact that these are people that are going to have to work together in this team context. And they said, can anybody help us with this? And it turns out that IO psychologists are well-suited to helping with this problem because we already study teamwork and collaboration in organizations. So my project is one of a whole series of grants that are funded by NASA to understand teams and collaboration. And we'll get into your specific grant in a bit later here. A lot of questions about the way the team cohesion can start to be frayed or fall apart, which I imagine in an extreme situation like this, there's got to be a hundred different things that could potentially cause problems. But to tee that up, maybe we should talk a little bit about how teams come together in the first place, how team cohesion is developed, what makes it something that happens. Can you say a little bit about how teams get formed in a cohesive way? So that's a great question. Teams research goes back to the 50s, 60s, in terms of when we really started to take this seriously as IO psychologists or as organizational behavioral researchers. And we have these kind of basic, what we call an input process output model. It's a way of thinking about how people are in group situations. Essentially says that there's various characteristics of people and various characteristics of the situation that people are in. Like how is the leader of the team interacting with the team members? What's the organizational constraints? What's the goal? Like, what are they there to do today? So there's all sorts of inputs, and they lead to various behavioral processes. So like, are you sharing information? Are you cooperating? Are you collaborating with other people? And then there's what's we, what we call emergent states. And so team cohesion, the thing that you're mentioning, is one of these really kind of critical emergent psychological states in teams. But we also know there's other, there's other really important ones, like trust is an emergent psychological state that people may or may not experience, right, depending on various things. So the way teams researchers think about this is that this confluence of input, so people's personalities, people's personalities in relation to other people's personalities, so an introvert working with an extrovert, for example, uh, as well as the situational constraints and the situational norms that people are all experiencing, that confluence of factors gives rise to uh, patterns of behavioral interactions and patterns of these relational states like trust and cohesion. And I might have used a term, a technical term, without meaning to. When I think of team cohesion, I'm thinking of teams that are working well together in sort of a, a general sense, elements of trust, et cetera, and part of it. Does team cohesion mean something pretty specific yeah, as you use it? it does. Um, so in the scientific literature, team cohesion usually means this kind of attraction to either the people on the team and or the task that that team is doing. And then there's task cohesion. You might have been on a team like in high school sports where you are you really want to win that game, but you maybe don't really like your teammates, but it's okay because everybody's so committed to the goal. And so teams can be highly cohesive in one or both of those dimensions. Which matters for sending people to Mars? I think both, but I think they're not going to go on that mission unless they're committed to that task. Uh, so Steve Kozlowski's research, he's another IO psychologist at Michigan State, has grant funding with NASA as well to study teams in what we call analog environments. They're capsules where we put people in for 40, 50 days. His research is specifically looking at team cohesion, especially this relational component of things. And his studies are showing that, first of all, there's very likely to be a massive breakdown in team cohesion over time. So there's quite a 
bit of evidence to suggest that, you know, you start high, everybody is happy and everybody likes each other. And then as the mission progresses and you realize that you're in this capsule in this isolated, scary environment, emotions change things and you start breaking down, you start liking people less. And before we go too much into the yeah. breakdown equation, which I do want to go into, what do we know about the compositions of groups? Like the actual right way to put people of whatever sort of backgrounds together to increase team cohesion and to the extent it's different, task cohesion? First of all, we know a lot, but we also don't know enough. And so one of the things that we know a lot about is characteristics of people that interact. So if you are somebody who is more similar to me, I'm more likely to like you. Rubs against the everyday notion of opposites attract. It does, but the evidence would suggest that homophily is a much stronger driver than opposites attract. Think about how many friends you have that are of the opposite gender. How many people you know and really closely affiliate that are of a different race than you. So if you really think about it, one of the strongest predictors of relationships in terms of liking and affiliation is birds of a feather flock together, essentially, right? The composition of teams that most increase the likelihood of team cohesion. I mean, it's a, it's a good question, but like we don't, we don't really know the definitive answer to that. There's this research on fault lines in groups. So fault lines is the idea that when multiple dimensions of characteristics are similar among a subset of that group, then they're likely to stick together. So for example, if there's two men who are from the NASA astronaut group and two women who are cosmonauts from Russia, then the two women cosmonauts from Russia are likely to form a much more cohesive bond, and the two men from America are most likely to form a a strong cohesive bond. But it's a little bit of a different story when you have a a man and a woman from America and a man and a woman from Russia, then there's maybe more cross subgroup cohesiveness feelings. So you kind of avoid forming cliques. Yes. If there's a lot of different axes along which people identify with different people in a group. Exactly. And so, I mean, I think you're you're onto something with that in that we don't want to completely stack the deck to make it a cliquish situation where there's two or three people that are going to affiliate with each other and then they're going to isolate like one other person or there are going to be two people over here and two people over there and the, those two subgroups don't like each other. I think that's the recipe for disaster in terms of these long duration missions where you want all the team to feel cohesive with one another. And so how much tension is there then with task cohesion or actually achieving whatever the functional goal is the group uh, is? Because I can imagine a lot of cases if I get with a lot of people that I like, and if it tends to be a bias to it being people that are kind of like me, we might start to suffer from some diversity of viewpoint problems that could be helped by having some people that are going to argue with us, disagree with us. So anybody that's going to be on this crew headed to deep space is going to be committed to this overarching goal. You wouldn't go on this mission and you wouldn't be a part of NASA unless you were committed to the overall, you know, with what presidential administration is setting as the goals of this organization. That's what people are committed to. However, I do think that there's some kind of concern, both within this crew, as well as people on Earth on, in mission control and other space agencies around the world that we may be collaborating with, in terms of like, what's the goal that people are prioritizing the most at that moment? And very often, that's not consistent across humans, and it might not be consistent across different groups. So, for example, my research shows that in these big systems, like you can think about NASA and these spaceflight missions is actually a big system comprised of multiple groups or teams that all have to work together effectively. And so when these big systems of multiple teams are having to 
all collaborate. You know, they might have the same shared overarching goal of, yeah, we want to get this team to team to Mars. But on a daily basis, they may not be prioritizing the same things. And that can cause some serious issues in terms of collaborating across different teams. If you're working on a team and you are prioritizing one thing and you're having to work on a, work with another team that is prioritizing a different thing, you may not check your assumptions, you may not share enough information and develop enough shared understanding to go in the same direction. And you may end up working at cross purposes and may not understand why there's conflict even. This starts to get into the other direction I wanted to tilt of, let's assume we have the teams that we do, the individuals have been selected, they've been assembled. What are the options to try to increase both team cohesion and team functioning and, in general? Yeah, and, yeah. Ta- and task cohesion. Because, right. I mean, as you're describing the different units at NASA, the parallels come to mind. I mean, one setting we operate in, people working in government in some kind of superordinate level, the same mission to do well by the community, but different pockets, political parties. I'm sure organizations have, of, in private markets have a similar dynamic. What can we do to elevate? You take a pick whether you focus on team or task achievement okay, first. Yeah. And, and I think maybe what we want to really be talking about is like collective functioning, like collective effectiveness, right? So it's not just cohesion. It's not just team or task cohesion, because actually there's a reverse causation issue with cohesion and task performance. Sometimes when you do really well with a group, then you become more cohesive. I think IO psychologists, are, our job is to understand people and organizations and apply psychological principles to real world situations. For example, the government healthcare, disaster response, the military. For example, providing teamwork training about not just what it is that you're trying to do in terms of your task work, but also how you need to be interacting with the other people in your team and how that team needs to be maybe interacting with other teams. So at some point you select the team that's going to go to Mars and you try to do everything you can to assemble the right composition of people. But I assume it's not perfect and there's still the problems that could surface. And so what are the kind of things you, you you do, whether it's training or structural things, to increase the odds that that collective functioning continues to on the positive trajectory? You may have a group of people you've already assembled. You don't get to necessarily fire them all and start over. And you want to work with the clay that is in place already in that organization. So IO psychologists can provide essentially like a toolkit of different options to help facilitate teamwork and collaboration that's needed to achieve these collective goals. So in terms of training, you want people to be aware of not just what the goal is, but also how people need to interact. What are we about to do together? And a lot of times teams maybe skip over some of these things. They go right to the doing part, which would be like the action processes. So that's one thing, is to understand not just what the task is, but also what behaviors and what communication patterns and what coordination patterns they need to be engaging in in order to achieve that task. And why? And so concretely, is this things like actually bringing the team fully together, having very open air conversations about like, we're about to roll out this new whatever? Yeah, very often communication is the foundation of a lot of team success. Why doesn't this happen more naturally? (sighs) That's the... That's the million dollar question, right? A lot of what we do naturally is not necessarily what's most effective for us. So we have some kind of built-in biases and built-in natural tendencies that are not always the most effective thing given the goals that we are now trying to achieve. You can see this especially when we, to go back to this idea that a lot of times teams are working with other teams, 
one of the things that we naturally do is we affiliate with our in-groups and we affiliate with people who are like us or who share the same norms and we distrust and tend to not accept the influence and ideas of the people from who are different from us who are in different groups and this is like fun in games when we think about football for example and my team doesn't like your team and I don't you know I don't want to see the outgroup team on game day for example but when the goal is to send a team to deep space then we have to overcome these kind of natural tendencies to affiliate with our own in-groups and actually start affiliating and communicating and sharing information with people who are different from ourselves. What kind of things does NASA do? After people engage in an action together, then they can get back together and reflect and understand what what went right, what went wrong. Uh, NASA has leveraged IO psychology principles to provide structured debriefing. So that's kind of the best The best way of doing this is to make sure that uh, you are addressing specific questions that are linked theoretically to what's important in teams. So things that we've talked about before, like trust or team cohesion, uh, a shared mental model, shared understanding of the task, and also communication patterns that are necessary. So a structured debriefing approach walks you through, here's what went right and what went wrong in the previous phase of task performance, and here's what we can learn from it, and here's how we can do better in terms of trust and cohesion and information sharing and communication and uh, leadership influence. And that way, when teams go through these debriefing processes and they learn from their previous mistakes and they're able to understand and develop a shared situational awareness essentially that can lead to better performance in the next phase. One of the things that NASA is planning on doing is they're building dashboards that are supposed to help the astronaut office, like the people who are in charge of the astronaut crew, better monitor these teams. And so there's been really kind of interesting innovations in terms of leveraging technology to monitor the crew that's operating, for example, on the ISS or in these analog environments or hopefully the one on the way to the moon and to Mars that will monitor their physiological indicators of things like team cohesion and team trust and also monitor who they're talking to and monitor who's being isolated. And so some of these dashboards are able to provide kind of printouts of like, here's where we are right now in terms of the team cohesion. And then kind of the open question is like how best to intervene when we see, for example, if this crew is headed to deep space and we find that one person is severely isolated, how do we leverage family dynamic or best practices in clinical psychology? I'm wondering how generalizable the results are going to be, both from the past IO research trying to put it in the, the Mars crew setting where you have presumably pretty unique individuals that aren't like everyone else in the world and the environment's very different and they're constantly being monitored. And we know from other threads of work that people behave sometimes under the conditions where they're being watched differently potentially. Are there? Do you have a sense yet of how these dynamics are likely to play out the same or differently? So that is, you know, one of the keys of why a lot of these projects have been funded over the past five or 10 years is there are some kind of best practices. For example, providing team training, crew resource management coming out of the military context and uh, checklists and debriefing coming out of both military as well as hospital settings. And the open question has been to what degree can we just 
straight apply that to this NASA context or to what degree do we need to have brand new tools? The evidence suggests that the tools that we have, like the team training and team debriefing, are also applicable for NASA context because they're still humans and these are built for just kind of generic team situations. But then in addition to that, we are finding that there are some phenomena that are maybe more critical, and that's where the training needs to be a little bit more focused. So again, like Steve Kozlowski's research showing that relational cohesion is so critical, especially as this goes on, our team training strategies might have been a little bit more focused on the task at hand with the assumption that people can go back home and relieve stress by hanging out with their families and friends on the weekends. So maybe our training interventions need to be a little bit more focused on things that we don't necessarily always focus as much in traditional workplaces. And putting aside teams for just half a second here, I'm interested in the psychology of just being observed so much. This has actually come up on a couple of prior yeah. podcasts and totally other sense of just we're increasingly in a society where there's a lot of surveillance, there's pictures being taken all the time. Well, first of all, can you give a picture of just how observed they are and the kinds of things that are being collected and who's watching it? Yes. I mean, they are signing up to be observed. They're essentially agreeing to be lab rats for the sake of science and the sake of the big mission. So the crew that's headed to deep space is going to be isolated in an extreme, extremely uncertain environment, uh, navigating uncharted territory. They won't have the ability to leave and go decompress with family members. But obviously, that's not the way we are wanting to be all the time in organizations. And in fact, um, Ethan Bernstein's research, he shows that people really need some kind of sometimes like barrier between themselves and management. We, we don't want everything to be transparent that we do. And sometimes when things are transparent, we don't, we're not innovative enough and we're not creative enough because we feel like we have to follow the rules so much more. I mean, is there video on them all the time? Are there heart rate monitors all the time? Like yes. how, de- how deep is the surveillance? Could you maybe talk about it a little concretely like that? Yes. So they are being videotaped, being audio recorded. They will have, they will have some private spaces uh, to do you know, bodily functions and that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but heart rate monitors, everything that we can physiologically measure and link with mission success and including mission success with our understanding that mission success is going to hinge on this kind of relationships among them. We've assembled the right team. We've done some coaching. We're now sending them out into space. What does this trajectory of collective functioning look like over time? What are the sort of things that can start to break it up? Do we know anything about the risk factors that it actually causes it at what point in time? There's a lot of evidence that's going to suggest that Things are going to get real for these for these people. It's kind of uncharted territory about how that's going to play out on a longer, on a much longer scale. And so again, as the missions get longer and longer and longer, it's much more likely that people are not going to feel tight with each other and they're not going to feel this relational cohesion or that there's going to be a lot of variability so that some people feel still tight with team as a whole, but other ones do not. The, the major difference is that the crew members on this mission to Mars don't have the ability to say, I quit. And what are the other settings that you draw on for this? And, and I mean, the things that are coming to my mind are, for example, marriage is a place where you get bonded for some amount of time. Not everybody makes it through the full trajectory, so to speak. Also, prison where people are required to be together. Right. Is that a literature that y'all are drawing on here? And if so, what do we know from those settings? 
I think we could draw on it even more than we currently do. The evidence suggesting that we need this relational cohesion long term suggests that we need to be kind of approaching this as like, what does family dynamics research suggest? What are the best practices for maintaining a marriage? And so one of the things we know from research on marital relationships is like turning towards one another instead of turning away. When your partner points out, uh, oh, look at this flower, then you turn towards that that thing, even if it's not that important to you and you you uh, provide some sort of support to your partner saying, oh, yeah, I, I see that too and I appreciate it and I appreciate And it's not really about the thing that they're pointing out to you. It's about the fact that you're engaging with your partner. There's a lot of findings out there from marriage research that I think could be useful to helping maintain the family dynamics of the crew on this longer mission. When you're in a group sort of setting, one way you can kind of alleviate the pressure that might build up is you have coping mechanisms like, you know, you leave the office, you go work out, you gripe with your spouse, you you know, you, you can do these things that kind of rejuvenate you, that you come back to the office the next day refreshed to deal with some of the stresses again. If you're in a spaceship, if you're in a, in, a, in a jail, or if you're in some other sort of situation where you don't have that same opportunity to leave the space, both maybe physically, but certainly mentally in some sense, you don't have that option. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that researchers are looking into how do we bring in research from clinical psychology, marriage counseling, that sort of thing, to help that specific crew. We're also thinking about similar issues in in the project that I'm working on to do with the fact that there's between group differences in their ability to leverage these coping mechanisms. As you mentioned, the crew, those people can't leave and go to the gym. However, they're working with teams on earth whose members can go to the gym. And this is one of these kind of points of disconnect where the environment that the crew is operating in is so very different than the environment of the teams that they are working on the same exact overarching goal with, all of those people get to go home. And so the big challenge is how do we make sure that the communication is maybe empathetic and understanding from both directions? Sometimes astronauts may think the people on Earth just don't get us and vice versa. A statement that has potentially been heard within a marriage before. Exactly. So this is getting into your particular portion of the research project. What's the objective? So the objective there is to help facilitate the collaboration that's going to be necessary across multiple teams that are working on this bigger mission. And those teams might be multiple teams in mission control. Obviously, the crew is a very important team of the spaceflight mission. But those members of the crew also have to work with members on Earth in teams at mission control. And sometimes the crew itself is, a, is what we would call like a multi-team system, a system comprised of multiple teams, where you might have a couple of people inside of the space capsule working with one or more astronauts who are doing robotic tasks outside of the capsule. And so what are the things that you're actually hoping to learn? What is likely to happen in these bigger systems in terms of who's going to like whom, who's going to trust whom, who's going to share information with whom? And the whom in that sentence, are you talking about Actual groups people. or individuals from one group talking to an individual in a second group? We're talking about both, actually. So we're really trying to map out the patterns of networks of things like trust and friendship and influence. So like, who do you accept leadership influence from? 
Sometimes you accept leadership influence from a formal leader. Other times you accept leadership influence from an informal leader who uh, maybe the organization doesn't want you to accept influence from. Think about this space mission as being made up of a lot of different teams of people from different backgrounds and different areas of expertise in different geographic locations who have major communication challenges. Like this team going to deep space is going to sometimes have a huge communication delay in terms of getting a message across back to Earth and vice versa. So think about this mission to Mars as being comprised of all of these different teams with all of these different people. And in order for them to achieve their overarching goal, we need the right patterns of trust and communication and information sharing and influence to arise and be maintained across all of these different people. But then based on what we know about people, what's likely to happen? Are people going to tend to affiliate with their own teams and avoid affiliating with other teams? And is your framework coming at this different in fundamental ways from the kind of inquiry you would be doing within a team asking these cohesion questions? What are the what are the differences in how you even approach this? So what we're doing is we're thinking about the reason why these networks of trust and leadership and cognition come about is from multiple levels of analysis. What I mean by that is that there's people nested in dyadic relationships, and those dyadic relationships are nested in cliques or teams, and teams are nested in this bigger system. So there's kind of levels within levels, and there's predictors of these relationships that exist at all of those different levels simultaneously. So people's individual differences, like their personality traits and their backgrounds and their values, play a role in who you trust and who you don't trust and that sort of thing. But also uh, what team you're on plays a role. Like, are you coming from a, a team where we really value things like shared leadership or something? Or are you coming from a, a team that really values more of a hierarchical structure of reporting and leadership? And then we also know that uh, relationships between people come about based on relationships between different groups. So my football team hates your football team. So we are not likely to be friends. That's this kind of higher level phenomenon of group relationships predicting a lower level phenomenon, which is like who you trust and who you like. So what we're trying to do with this grant is uh, understand all of these predictors across multiple levels of analysis simultaneously playing a role in who likes whom and who trusts whom and who accepts influence from whom and who shares a shared you know, mental model with whom. One thing that seems implied here, but maybe to tease it out explicitly, is that you know, we're not jumping to talking about trying to make everyone feel at NASA as if there is one solidary team no, and only, true, right? which I assume reflects some of the benefits that team identities and subgroup team identities can give. Can you say a little bit about this, this kind of balancing act between the benefits of having smaller team identities that you sort of curate while also meeting the needs of a larger organization? Right. There's this idea of when you have multiple groups or teams working together, to some degree, you want them to be committed and understand what the bigger superordinate goal of the the system is. But you also don't want them to lose sight of who they are and what their group is and what value their group can bring to the table, because that's kind of a motivating component of being in a group. And if you feel like it's this just like one huge undifferentiated whole you maybe don't have as much collective efficacy to work on anything because you don't you don't really feel like you're part of something. On the other hand, you don't want too strong of team identity because then you may be unwilling to work with another group. So social psychologists argue that very often when you have groups working with other groups that you need what's called like a relational group identity. 
And so what that means is that you understand what your group is bringing to the table. You also understand what other groups are bringing to the table. And you, are, you understand how those groups are both valuable to the bigger picture. So this is something that leaders of multiple groups can help facilitate through things like leader, through communication of communicating what is the bigger goal, but also communicating what each group separately and uniquely brings to the table and how these two different groups are both necessary to achieving the bigger picture goal. The parallels just keep coming into my mind around the political environment where people get identities that they sort of develop around particular issues, particular uh, political parties, and the debates that emerge between these groups is not always very productive, yeah, let's say. Absolutely. Are there, from the work that you've been doing and the literature you've been seeing, are there parallels that you see here? And, you know, more to the point, adv- adv- advice you would give to people that are in political yeah. discourse? Well, I'll tell you about a study that uh, we're about to send out for publication. What we did in this study is we realized that a lot of these big picture grand challenges require teams from different backgrounds to share information, but not just share information, but also like accept the influence of one another. And what I mean by that is like, I understand that your team is valuable and I am willing to see that there's something that you, some things that you can offer to this bigger picture that I need to find valuable. So this is the basis of like social interdependence theory is that when you put groups of people together, they need to be not only committed to the task, but committed to being influenced by one another, like accepting leadership from one another. So we, we did this experiment where we had teams of students in three different classes. So one of them was uh, from a business innovation management class. Another one was from an environmental science class. And another one was from a social psychology class. And each of these classes had about 100 people. And we randomly assigned these students into teams. And then we connected the teams together to form, we had about 50 multi-team systems And we said, okay, now students, for your entire semester, work on this really complicated environmental science problem that requires expertise from all of these different teams. And then by the end of the semester, provide us a plan for what we're going to do to solve this environmental science problem. And we find that the systems that were more effective tended to be the ones that granted each other influence across these disciplinary boundaries, across these teams. But that situation was highly unlikely. People have this kind of component team preference. We want to be insular. We want to only trust and only accept influence from people who are like us. So on average, people are seriously unlikely to accept influence from other from members of other teams. But the systems that did so were the ones that created the most innovative, creative, and most useful outcomes. But what we really were interested in is like, how could we set up the team context in a different way socially that would make or break whether these people were willing to engage in these influence processes across teams that we found in study one were going to be necessary. And we find that if we create a team situation where the leader of that team, for example, is focusing everybody's attention on that bigger picture, those team members are the most likely to be influential in relation to other teams because they talk about the bigger picture, which is like a little bit more of an inspiring transformational goal. So they mention the bigger picture goal more often. And so other people from other teams are just more willing to see that person as somebody who is leader-like. Additionally, they are more willing to grant leadership influence to other people, meaning that they're just willing to, to think about and incorporate the ideas of other teams. So to get back to your question, what can you do to make sure that we maybe do 
what we're not naturally predisposed to do, which is to claim or grant influence across team boundaries. You as a manager can focus your team on the bigger picture and explain and use communication to explain what this bigger picture goal is and how your team fits into it and how other teams fit into it. In selecting the individuals for the team, it, because of the extreme conditions, I would imagine you could sort of avoid some of the problems if the individuals are you know, single, don't have a family, don't have a lot of social connections because they wouldn't be things that they're being sort of pulled towards. And on the other side of the spectrum there, that sort of person might also be the sort of person least likely to function very well in a small cramped group. Yes. And I think that's a very good point. I think all options are on the table from a scientific perspective. These these things about like looking for somebody that's single and isolated and maybe potentially detached, uh, that's not necessarily what we would normally do in terms of selecting employees for most traditional organizations. But it is something that's in play scientifically in the models that are being built of how people are going to be interacting. And so I think that is an open research question about how to, how to best balance that. There's all sorts of kind of pros and cons for each one of these characteristics. The complexity of this problem particularly as we've been talking about it more, seems just overwhelming. There's so many different things that can go wrong. How, what, do you, what do you say to the naysayers that maybe worry that this isn't possible and that we shouldn't even be trying to do this in the first place? I absolutely think it's doable. And I think that it's worthwhile to try no matter what. You know, this is like who we are as humans. Like this is our human nature is to go and explore and do, try to do these, tackle these big subordinate grand challenges together. Like that is exactly what motivates me as a researcher. Well, Dorothy Carter, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast at DC. I feel like this is my one chance to end it by saying Godspeed with your Thank work. Thank you so much. The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Podcasts.